0: The ASCIIL Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton. So, I am Lee Elliott Major. I am the country's first professor of social mobility and I'm former CEO of the Sutton Trust charity.
1: And uh, just remind us when we talk about social mobility, and some people are a bit critical of the term social mobility, what is it we mean by that?
0: So, social mobility really defines um, the fluidity in society so to what extent are we products of our mother and father's background so the less of a link between the the characteristics of our mum and dad whether it be occupations or income or education and our, our, our adult characteristics the more mobile society is people talk about it because it relates to equality of opportunity in theory the more mobility in a society the greater equality of opportunity there is i.e the background doesn't determine your chances it's down to your work a bit of luck etc etc i uh, always surprise people because i um, myself critique the term because it has become uh, associated with a very narrow version of uh, success in life what i call the american dream version We're going to pluck uh, this talented kid from a disadvantaged background. He's going to become the first professor of social mobility, as I did. Um, And everything's okay because we've saved someone, right? And um, my view is that the principle I work by, people people might call it social justice or equity, is your background shouldn't determine what you do, whatever that is, right? So um, if one of your pupils in your school ends up in the local community community, becoming a good teacher or a social worker i think that's a good outcome um, but if someone do, does want to go to the big city and um get a job that maybe influences the national agenda then great you know we want both those things um but i think the term sociability unfortunately has become associated with that very narrow view and sometimes politicians use that to circumvent the bigger issues, which are inequality, right? Which is, of course, um, more profound now than uh, probably at any point in the last 50 years. So, So most of my work really is about addressing Inequality within schools and outside schools. So I study social mobility, but I don't necessarily promote it, if you like. So it's there is there a, is a tension there, and sometimes I wonder maybe I should have called myself the professor of social justice. But anyway, it is that term. But I do understand some of the critiques of it in technical terms, in academic terms. Mobility is much more detailed than that. You can have mobility vertical as well as horizontal. So you can you could you can be mobile in many different ways. It's just the political interpretation of it has become quite narrow. Um, but I would probably say my work is more about social justice in many ways.
1: OK, so just, just lifting a couple of things out of that. One, one of the issues about social mobility is the assumption, a bit like Justine Greening. Do you remember she made that speech about how she essentially escaped from Rotherham? And the definition of, w- w- of what social mobility appeared to be was by moving to a different place rather than the community I uh, was brought up in. And actually, we know that lots of people feel very proud of where they were. So you want something that essentially says you can have the dignity of success and stay in that community. You don't need to leave it. So it's partly that and partly, I suppose, an argument which says this is down to the individual. If you work harder, if you've got the right networks, then you can move forwards that's problematic isn't it because it means that it's happening because of an individual rather than what society might be doing is that a terrible kind of stereotype i'm, I'm weaving into that
0: no no, it's very valid and and it, and it actually really relates to the latest book i've written called equity in education which we'll get into uh, and lots of teachers i've been presenting uh, the ideas in that book we talk about dignity not deficit right what do we mean by that we mean exactly that that you know the social mobility work I'm involved in in a way is just enabling children to maybe do a little bit better than their parents generation did, yeah, that's the hope I suppose but also that means um, doing a valuable valued job in your local community so, so I always tell my own story right, so I was daily mailed always a really uncomfortable experience to get called up by a day, we're going to do a story on you and the headline was uh, from bin man to professor, okay now, I was a bin man. By the way, it was nepotism. My mum worked for the local council. It was a summer job while I was doing a PhD. The headline didn't mention all that, okay? But it was that typical story of, um, you know, this, this, these, these people that do the bins. We, 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 it, by definition, we're, being, uh, we're, we're, we're thinking of them as inferior and we're saying professors are better. And when I do sessions with primary school kids and A-level students... It's lovely because we, we, we reflect on that. And I'm often asked by some of the primary school pupils, how do you become a bin man? It's always lovely to sort of hear those questions. And I'm very proud to have been a bin man and a street cleaner, by the way. Um, so I think, you know, that there, there are real... Um, my, my, my view is that we've got to get away actually from those deficit mindsets that dominate uh, British politics um, and you know, if you think about it, current politics we have on both sides of the major political parties this assumption that you can have greater inequality, basically. And by the way, uh, schools are going to be responsible for creating equality of opportunity. We're not going to give them much more money, well, no more money actually. Uh, but basically, uh, we're going to give them the whole responsibility of delivering on equality of opportunity. Um, and, and I think there's a kind of deficit mindset that's beneath those political assumptions. Uh, And because they always parade the stories like mine as as, as the system's okay because we've got a few people that manage to sort of climb the ladder. Um, The biggest issue we're facing in many ways is how do we um, uh, make those local communities alive again? Because many people I visit across the country, um, sadly, there there aren't the opportunities there for those people to thrive. So uh, that's the much bigger issue than just saving a few people like me who happen to be a bit academic. You know, that's
1: a small slice of this debate. So we're going to come to your book. Let me just ask you one thing before, it, and it's something which you've written about and talked about and has set me thinking a lot, and that is, and you mentioned it there, role of parents, because what we know is that actually what happens to you before you set foot into your early years and to your primary school, etc., is really significant. You wrote a book for parents, helping them... It's a really difficult space for government, isn't it, to step into because it's nanny statism and stuff. But at some point, particularly in the 21st century with technology and digital, we're going to have to start saying, what is it like to be a parent in the 21st century? What are the responsibilities? How can you get support in doing that? That, that must become part of an agenda, mustn't it, for any government?
0: Yes, improving the home learning environment and helping parents has to be part of the agenda politicians run away from this when you know i've pestered ministers over the years as you know on that issue Um, the thing you've got to do though is not do it in a deficit way right so you can't knock on people's doors and say why aren't your children coming to our schools without in my view reflecting on the curriculum that we offer in schools. so my view is that we've got to work with parents and pupils Um, in in, in a more equal way, in many ways, without without compromising on the core academic offering that we we offer, I still think we could do more to consider the curriculum that we offer for all our children, and we'll get into this in the book. I I cite some really challenging research how working-class pupils... um, on average do not get as much feedback in the classroom and we think that's down just to the unconscious biases that professors and teachers have because we all tend to be middle class by definition. We'll get into that. So I think, I think you have to look at reforming us as well as asking them to do more. I think if you just say we've got a system, we're not going to change anything but we want you to fit into this system I don't think that's ever going to solve the issue so the attendance crisis we've got at the moment the rhetoric around knocking on people's doors and finding them, it's never going to work, in my view. I think we want a deeper conversation about what is the school offering and is that uh, appropriate for all our children? I think
1: we're failing a significant number of children. At the moment. And how do you respond to the inevitable enemy of promise response to that, which is that you, what, what they would say is, well, you're saying that the kind of curriculum that middle classes would want for their children isn't the kind of curriculum which is going to work for working-class children. So, by definition, you have dumbed down right from the beginning.
0: So, this is, this is not about lowering expectations. Um, and, by the way, that model basically hasn't worked. I mean, we've had that model for at least a decade, probably more. Uh, if you look at the results, if you look at the achievement gap, it's as stark, if not starker than ever before. All sorts of reasons for that, right? Um, so, it hasn't worked, I'd say. Uh, But secondly, of course, I'm not saying we don't offer the middle-class rules, the unwritten curriculum, if you like, the rules. Everyone should know about those rules. But at the same time, you've got to celebrate working-class culture. And what we tend to do, I think, is impose the dominant culture... On all these uh, families, and it just doesn't. And I can understand. I can understand if you come from a different culture. So, so this is not about dumbing down. It's about having a more balanced approach where you're offering the, um, the, the yeah. You know, so, in terms of cultural capital, you're saying Let, let's let's uh, introduce all children to the theatre. If we're going to use those uh, sort of generalisation stereotypes. Um, but at the same time, we're going to celebrate properly in our curriculum some of the people that just happen to come from working class backgrounds. Um, so, I, I, honestly, I, I get so frustrated with that accusation. Um, We've got to a stage now where it's so extreme now. We don't have even a mention of disadvantage in the way that we um, measure schools through Ofsted or our performance tables, the way that we train new teachers. My view is that we need a better understanding of the societal inequalities in which schools work. Uh, Sorry, a better understanding of the social inequalities uh, in which schools work. Um, Most research done in the world on education suggests about half of the variation in outcomes for children is due to outside school factors, most of which teachers have no control over.
1: So that would be what, friendship groups? family circumstances etc
0: yeah found yeah, if you think about how much time children spend in the home environment and their neighborhood it, it, yeah it, it, it's it's huge so um i think it's deeply profoundly unfair the way that we treat schools at the moment um it's no um surprise that the uh, the higher proportion of outstanding ofsted inspections go to the middle class areas you know The more conspiratorial academics in my field will say that we've essentially created a system that can only be won by the middle classes. So if you look at private tutoring outside schools, boomed over the last couple of decades. I know we've had a slightly failed national tutoring program uh, experiment over the last couple of years, but generally, you know, it's the middle classes that are investing ever more. We have an exam system that's so narrow it's it's built in a way for for gaming so that that people like me by the way i'm one of those middle class parents now we will do all all, all the things that we uh, that our children need if you don't have that resource um then you're not going to do it and by the way i think there's cultural divides as well so the evidence would suggest that middle classes engage in what we call concerted cultivation of their children so they're cultivating them to put their hand up to know the language of the classroom To to be competent, to advocate for yourself, to negotiate. Middle class parents tend to negotiate with their children, often too much actually. They go too far. Um, Whereas working class parents, these are averages, generalizations, tend to do what we call natural growth parenting, which is less structured time. There's an assumption implicit in some of those parenting techniques that it's the school's responsibility to do the education. Now, the point about that is both is actually are valid you know i would argue they've got their strengths and weaknesses the problem is we have a school system which is quintessentially middle class and a university system by the way i'm not you know blaming anyone for this and if you are cultivated in those cultural norms you're just going to flourish more in the classroom and so i always emphasize when i'm doing my talks and workshops with teachers i'd say cultural divides are as important as material divides um, and the problem at the moment is they're becoming deeper, both materially and culturally.
1: Now, a lot of that will have echoes for those of us who st- study bits of Bernstein and people like that talking about this in the 1970s. What is it specifically in the book you're doing? Tell us a little bit about the book. Remind us of the title. Remind us who you wrote it with. Uh, remind us what you're doing there, because it's, it's talking about the stuff you're talking about, but it's doing it in a practical way as well. What could I, as a teacher or a leader actually do to actually reshape some of this stuff?
0: So it's written with Emily Bryant, who's a brilliant sociology teacher in Ivy Bridge School in uh, Devon. I'm actually going there to tomorrow do, to do the prize ceremony. So I'm the guest of honour. It's always a bit daunting. I'm the inspirational speaker. Who, who knows what the uh, GCSE and A-level students will think of me. But anyway, I'm seeing Emily tomorrow. She also happens to be a PhD student with me, right? So that's why we've done this book together. Um, I purposely got Emily to do it with me because she is a practicing teacher, right? So we wanted to produce a book that has all the ideas that you, me and Jeff, you know, sorry. So it's a book that has all the ideas that we have spoken about a lot over the years, you know, the principles, the theories. But then we have chapters for teachers, for teacher leaders, for trust leaders as well, actually. What could you do about the the things that we we, uh, talk about in the book? It's called Equity in Education. We talk about equity... Um, rather than equality, because in our view, we should be doing more for those children from under-resourced backgrounds. I'm going to talk a bit about the language we use as well. In our view, the inequalities in society have become so extreme, I, we, we believe there is a moral duty on schools now to do more for those young people. There was a report out uh, yesterday or today by the Institute of Fiscal Studies showed that, they're, they're, that, that the... Um, funding shortfall is actually bigger in schools serving disadvantaged children so we're, we're going the opposite way round. so equity is about fairness it's about leveling up that playing field we've heard that term a lot haven't we leveling up but this is really about doing more now i think that's difficult by the way because what you do have in schools is lots of middle-class parents demanding lots for their children um, and we can get we can get into that some, some of the details so equity is purposely chosen Um, I'm an expert more in social class and income background than um, ethnicity or gender. So this book complements some of those really important debates about other diversity efforts, okay? So, but it really focuses on social class. We know um, that, that these things all mix, so there's a thing called, what we, we call intersectionality. So, you know, if you happen to be a, a female working class or black student, then your disadvantages multiply, actually. So, so, but, but just so everyone knows, this is really about social class differences. And, and one of the things that we felt was that social class has become, become a bit of a taboo topic in many uh, schools so we wanted to sort of put it out there that actually a lot of the divides we see in the classroom are driven by class background as well as these other uh, important attributes. Um, The other bit about language that's really important, it's caused quite a lot of debate, is instead of labelling children as disadvantaged pupils, disadvantaged students, Or all the acronyms you get in schools: DS, DL, PP, FSM. There's a whole litany of these sort of acronyms. We use uh, children from under-resourced backgrounds. The reason it, yeah, it's a long term. It's maybe a clunky term for some people, but there's three reasons we we went for that term. One. Disadvantage isn't a binary divide. So we, we fall into the trap as educators because of our system that we think there are the pupils and then there's the non-disadvantage. The truth is there's a spectrum of disadvantage. And by the way, there's a lot of working poor children out there or children from working poor backgrounds that don't get the FSM. And, and, I, and I always uh, you know, worry a bit about those children that's in the middle, actually. And if you look at the crisis we have cost of living crisis that's hitting a lot of children it's not just those on free school meals. so so disadvantage isn't a binary right and, and I think because of the way the sector is we're all assessed on these things we tend to fall into that trap and of course um, the other thing is again it comes back to deficit mindset if you call someone a disadvantaged people you without intending to do it you immediately fall into deficit mindset you you are thinking of them at some level as inferior to those other pupils that are in some, somehow they, they're better because of their background. There's loads of research that suggests that we do fall into those stereotypes, despite our best intentions. You know, I always say, if I want one group of people to champion uh, children from under background, it's going to be teachers. You're, they are the people that do it the most. But even they are humans, right? And they suffer the same social biases that we all do. So um, so we use that to. and then finally... Um, we, we found with A-level students, when we, when we had these really good debates with them, they didn't want to be actually term-disadvantaged students. They, they had lots of other things going for them, right? Just because they happened to be on free school meals, they felt it was a bit of a pejorative term. Um, so we've argued that we need a new language. Now That doesn't mean you can't use the term disadvantaged when you're looking at, you know, national studies that I do and others do, where you're just looking at a term well-defined... Uh, to, to look at the big inequalities but I think at classroom level at school level I do worry about that term uh, because I think it, it, it makes us fall into that uh, deficit mindset and in the book we, um, we have a lot of um, exercises where we essentially getting teachers I think it would be a good exercise for a group of teachers teacher leaders to sit down and actually reflect on some of the biases in the classroom um, they're rife throughout the system If you look at the examination system we have, there are many uh, exam questions that are loaded with middle-class assumptions. I think the way we teach, you could um, uh, uh, at least observe each other in classrooms. So what we find is that these are averages, and there are some teachers doing this, addressing these issues brilliantly, and actually what we don't do enough is learning from those really good practitioners. But on average, what what research shows is that because... Um, those teachers tend to be more middle class, the uncomfortable finding is is that they tend to give less individualised feedback, eye contact, warmth to those children who come from working class backgrounds. And there's all sorts of complex theories about why that is. So
1: even eye contact?
0: Some of the studies would suggest eye contact as well. And you'll know, Jeff, with my previous work from another era, when i was part of the team who produced the famous saturn trust ef toolkit um, you know the thing that came up as one of the best bets for teachers to improve attainment for those from under resource background was it was individualized feedback we all know this as teachers the problem for teachers is you don't have time to do this we we have a system that is basically makes all sorts of assumptions it it, it, it sort of doesn't doesn't pay n- enough for teachers to do the job they do it doesn't give enough t- time but we know that if you can Find ways of doing individualized feedback. That's one of the um, best bets. If you're not doing that systematically for those from working class backgrounds, it's probably not going to be great for them. Um, There's all sorts of other reflections, though, I've had with teachers when I've been presenting the new book. Really interesting stuff. Behaviour policies is one of them. So a lot of teachers say to me, the move to these very zero-tolerance type behaviour policies that we're seeing across the system at the moment... You need to reflect on that bit because their view, and again, you've got to be really careful with generalisations, but their view was if you're from a work-class background, you're going to close down a little bit if you're reprimanded in a certain way, whereas if you're a more middle-class pupil, you're going to be able to advocate for yourself, explain. Um, Again, what I'd love to do over next year is maybe understand that in a bit more detail and come up with toolkits for classroom teachers because a lot of classroom teachers are saying to me, Lee, I love all this, but what do we do? You know, you're stepping into the classroom on Monday. What do we need to do? So I'm, I'm really enjoying developing, co-creating some toolkits for teachers around this. Um, but I think just being aware of the biases that we all suffer, I think, is a good start.
1: And just a couple of things before we finish. So you mentioned inspection and you mentioned the unfairness of inspection, particularly a if you're working already in a school in a most challenging, disadvantaged area, but B, if you were thinking of moving into one of those areas, it will be a deterrent for you. So what, what what, in your world does inspection need to look like that is going to actually help those communities that most need great schools with great teachers and great leaders to actually have them? So there's two
0: core messages in the book. One is we as educators need to up our game in terms of the biases and barriers within the system. But secondly, and really importantly, we need a fairer system for schools to take into consideration the profound inequalities outside the school gates, Okay, So in my view, in the future, Ofsted inspections should give a fairer judgment on schools working wonders in really disadvantaged areas. Uh, At the moment, um, they are penalised, basically unfairly. Uh, and we know in the research that, that, that um, a child's um, home environment their neighborhood has a profound impact on their outcomes. Again, this is not an excuse i 'm not sort of lowering exceptions you 've just got to put teachers' efforts into context. They can be transformative, um, but you know if you're working in a really difficult circumstances it's really tough to do that quickly to turn around a whole uh, community so in the book we talk a bit about what you might do in terms of in providing free breakfast or providing eye tests. You've got to be careful with all this stuff, of course, because you've only got so much time and resource. The problem for teachers is no one else is picking up the pieces. So there's a whole chapter we do on what is your strategy for the outside, in a sense. You know, what, what, what are your um, options? But then we advocate um, some really strong uh, recommendations for policy, one of which is. We should look at how well schools are doing for children from under-resourced backgrounds. It's probably going to be those on free school meals, given that's the only data we got. No school should be, in our view, given outstanding, outstanding ranking if... Uh, sorry, no school should be giving an outstanding rating if they're not doing well for those under-resourced children, in our view. We also need to give credit to some of those schools doing wonderful jobs in difficult circumstances. At the moment, we are hemorrhaging teachers because so many of them who are who are dedicating their lives to countering those societal inequalities that have got profound over the last decade are leaving the profession because they're they're being told that they require improvement or uh, that their school's they're not inadequate. good enough or they're inadequate and that just leads to the teachers leaving the school it leads to parents uh, leaving the school uh, and too many schools to be frank are coasting at the other end of the spectrum who are just you know have incredibly privileged intakes who are already high performers, who then, of course, you know get get very good GCSE and A level grades. Very little surprise in that, but they will often get, in my view, too easy um, outstanding ratings. So if you look at that, um, it, it, it just means that it becomes a proxy for middle classness in some ways. The inspection system. I would look at the performance tables as well. I personally, and again, I'll probably be shot down for this, but I would probably go back to having a five GCSE measure as a core measure for some children. We have twenty percent of young people who leave school or at least age sixteen who don't have a grade four in English and Maths GCSEs. All sorts of reasons for that, but I think having this, um, you know, expectation that you're going to do eight subjects for some children, I think, is too much. And I think we should allow them to elect to do the subjects they want to do. And that might be in art, by the way, that might be another subject. So that again would be quite controversial in the current context, but I don't think the current regime is working. You know, We've had this experiment probably, what, 10 years? The Govian, year, Govian decade, I think we need to rebalance the system without, I stress, without sort of lowering expectations. Um, but certainly we need, we need to reform because it isn't working at the moment.
1: N- nearly finished. Final two points. You mentioned earlier on not just that the book is around teachers and leaders, but also trust leaders. That's a kind of acknowledgement, isn't it, in the brave new world that we've got now? there's an opportunity as someone who probably will have been a head teacher that you can step into having a wider influence over a group of schools and that sense of social mission on behalf of those young people. Is that essentially what's being articulated there?
0: Yes. So I think if you're a trust leader, equity or social justice, whatever term you want to use, has to be a core part of your message. In my view, it has to be part of every conversation you're having. And so I've done lots of sessions with school leaders. We've, we've, we've talked about this. So there's lots of practical things you can do. But all this really, to be honest, it ultimately is about mindset. And if you're, you know, if you're on it relentlessly, I think you can have a real impact. I also worry about the schools that aren't in trust at the moment, because you know, I'm doing loads of talks on this around the system. I have to say, it tends to be those trust, those big trusts that can organise those sessions. So I do think this is probably another discussion, Jeff, we can have. But... You know the system seems a bit fragmented almost broken at the moment and I hope whoever the new government is also looks at the role of local authorities trusts and schools who aren't in trust so um, yeah, I think if you're a trust leader there's a lot you can do but I also think we need systems to help those schools that aren't actually in trust at the moment as well
1: And final question so we are going to have a general election in the next year, we're going to have inevitably, I think, a new Secretary of State. I think the message from you is there are things you should probably leave alone because they probably are working and there are probably some things that you ought to give a absolute priority to. What's the absolute priority from your point of view to the next Secretary of State?
0: That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I, I do think probably reforming Ofsted would be one of three priorities for me. Because
1: it drives so much of the behaviour in schools?
0: Because it drives so much behaviour and it's in long need of reform, as you know, as well as me. I probably would look at the reforming the early years sector as well, which, of course, lots of debate about at the moment. I think it has been a scandal over the last 13 years that we have dismantled the Sure Start programme that we had previously you know, schools are playing catch-up from day one. At age five, children come in with already huge gaps. So you've got to have an early years system. Um, lots of other ideas. I mean, it's ironic in many ways. The two bits of the system that, 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 are, that, that are most important in some ways for social justice—the early years system and the further education college system—are the least paid. They are the Cinderella sectors of the. So, so while most of my work, to be honest, is with schools. Um, you know, if if I had if I had the treasury as well as the Department of Education there, I'd probably say we need to start looking at pay uh, and training for, for, for our, our colleagues in the FE and, and early years sector. Lee Elliott Major, just remind us of the name of the book. Equity in Education, uh, and it's published by John Catt.
1: Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. The Askell Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton.